Hello and welcome to episode 126 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today's case is as disturbing, I think, as I've covered on this podcast. It's a story from Scotland where fiction merges into reality with terribly distressing consequences. But firstly, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club, that's Craig Stevens and Gary Dugdale. Thank you so much for your support. Let me point you in the direction of my website at uktruecrime.com for two fascinating insights with true crime podcasters. The first is an interesting piece from Steve, who creates the Evil Minds podcast, which explains why he has now started his new show. And secondly, is a really insightful piece from my favourite podcaster, the true crime enthusiast, talking about the success of his show, which to me is an absolute must-listen. Just head to uktruecrime.com to read their thoughts. Let's quickly set some context around the music we were listening to, or not, on the 11th of December 2002. Top of the charts was Eminem with Lose Yourself, keeping a genuine rock classic from number one, The Cheeky Girls, with the cheeky song, brackets, Touch My Bum, close brackets. A popular first dance at many weddings, I understand. Eminem was also top of the pile in the US, and in the Australian album charts, Avril Lavigne was top with Let's Go. Not heard her name for a while, have you? But then again, I doubt I'm really her target market, am I? (laughs) In the news this month, the cinema was as much fun for me as root canal treatment with new films coming out from Star Trek and Lord of the Rings. But I appreciate I'm in a minority on Lord of the Rings, as it took a whopping $62 million on the opening weekend, and $926 million worldwide. In the UK, Sheree Blair apologised for the embarrassment she caused in buying flats in Bristol for her son, with the help of convicted fraudster Peter Foster. And in true crime news, Stuart Campbell, a 44-year-old builder from Greys in Essex, was found guilty of murdering his 15-year-old niece, Danielle Jones, 18 months earlier. Danielle's body has never been found. It was then revealed that Campbell, who was sentenced to life imprisonment, has a string of previous convictions, including keeping an underage girl at his home without lawful authority in 1989. Today's story is from Foldhouse, a village in West Lothian, Scotland, of around 4,000 residents, which is about halfway between Glasgow and Edinburgh. 21-year-old Thomas McKendrick lived here, but in December 2002 he disappeared without warning. Thomas was 5 foot 11, broad with blue eyes and a fair complexion. He had a shaved head with a scar on his left arm and was wearing blue jeans and black boots when he was last seen. His family and detectives were puzzled about his disappearance, but they feared the worst, especially when he failed to contact his family over what was a dreadfully long Christmas period, when every knock at the door or ring of the phone brought mixed feelings of hope and dread. Unemployed Thomas failed to collect his gyro, which was most out of character, and when police found some of his clothes in a bag nearby, they strongly suspected that he would not ever be returning home. And it was four weeks later, in January, 
when the Scotsman newspaper reported that his body had been found in a shallow grave nearby. The report continued. The body was discovered in a wooded area at the back of a popular community centre, used by locals on Saturday morning. Thomas McKendrick disappeared from the home he shared in Foldhouse with his mum, Sandra, and sister, Sandra Mary, on Wednesday, December the 11th. A spokesman added, Following a search of dense wooded area at the back of the community centre on Saturday, his body was found. A post-mortem will be held later to positively identify the body and to establish a cause of death. However, police are treating the death as suspicious. Detectives revealed that they had stepped up the hunt for Thomas after his bag of clothing had been uncovered by police carrying out a fingertip search of the village. Forensic tests were still being carried out on the clothes and police declined to say whether they were those he was wearing when he disappeared. Police also revealed they were keen to trace a mystery man called Andy, who was spotted with him on the night he disappeared. Police had already carried out extensive door-to-door inquiries, and had also combed a disused quarry nearby, which Thomas was known to frequent. And later, the pathology report confirmed that Thomas had suffered a terribly violent death. He'd been stabbed 42 times with a large knife in the face, head and body, and then bludgeoned over the head six times with what was suspected to be a hammer. It hadn't been a swift death, and the report concluded that the attack had been prolonged and used tremendous force, which meant that Thomas was likely to have been conscious and so able to see the fiendish face of his murderer as he slowly drifted towards death. Thomas was a popular man who didn't appear to be mixing with any sort of dangerous crowd, whose activity could result in such a violent attack. Despite an intense investigation into his lifestyle, detectives could see no reason why anybody would want to kill him. In fact, once the usual family and the mysterious Andy had been eliminated from the inquiry, there was only really one suspect, Thomas's best friend, Alan Menzies. But they'd been mates for years, so it was hard to understand why Alan would want to kill his own pal. And back on January the 4th, when Thomas's bag of clothes was discovered on the nearby moors, detectives did search Alan's home and question him about Thomas. Alan confirmed that he had seen Thomas on the day he disappeared, but he said he had no idea what happened to him when he left his house. What detectives didn't know at that stage was that when Alan's dad arrived home later that day, he had seen spots of blood around the house. But Alan was quick to allay his fears by explaining that he had cut himself on a can and it was his blood in the house. It was nothing to do with Thomas's disappearance. But another red flag was Alan's reaction to the police questioning, which was extreme, as he took an overdose of pills and had to spend 48 hours in hospital. Then bizarrely, he'd approached Thomas's mum while she was shopping in the supermarket and asked her if she knew how to remove bloodstains. Was this a signal that he had killed Thomas and he was now taunting his mum? Surely not. But detectives certainly viewed him as a suspect in the disappearance and brought him in for questioning again when the body had been found. And this time, shockingly, he quickly confessed to the murder of Thomas. And for Thomas's already devastated family, 
What they then heard about the final moments of their son were the stuff of their very, very worst nightmares. It seemed the countdown to murder had begun when Thomas brought a film ground to Alan's house one day for them both to watch. Queen of the Damned. Have you seen it? I watched it when researching this story. And, wow, it's a pretty dire Australian-American horror film from 2002. And it's a loose adaption of the third novel of Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicle series. The book's supposed to be excellent for its genre. Even those who like this sort of film say it just isn't very good. And it was panned on the Rotten Tomatoes site, which summarised it as a muddled and campy MTV-styled vampire movie with lots of eye candy and bad accents. But it did something for Alan Menzies, who was captivated by the film and was seen watching it for up to three times a day. The lead vampire, Akasha, and the other vampires in the film all became very real to Alan, and he began to call himself Leon after one of the characters. He began to believe that Akasha visited and spoke to him, sitting on the end of his bed, offering him immortality in exchange for killing people and delivering their souls. Around the time, his dad noticed how he'd become obsessed with vampires, and that in the small periods of time when Alan wasn't alone in his bedroom, this was all Alan spoke about. Speaking later at his trial in court, Alan revealed that Thomas died as he'd made the fatal error of insulting Akasha. That's what made Menzies snap, he claimed. This had all occurred after he'd begun buying ox livers and eating them raw to get their blood, and he'd listened to the songs from the Queen of the Damned repetitively to develop into a vampire. I could never get the thought of being a vampire out of my mind, he said. To put it bluntly, after I'd seen the tape so many times, I wanted to go out and murder people. His defence QC asked him if he believed he was now a vampire and had achieved immortality. To both questions he answered yes, adding, I agreed with Akasha that I would murder people. I would be rewarded in the next life. I'll be made immortal, a vampire basically. To put it bluntly, in basic terms, you have to murder people and drink their blood. Menzi said that Akasha told him only to murder someone and it didn't really matter who it was, it was just the murdering and the drinking of blood that were vital. On the day of his death, Thomas had made a joke about Menzi's belief in vampires as well as a sexual comment about the actress playing Akasha. He should never have insulted my bird, Menzies had told his QC. He continued by saying that he and Thomas were standing in the kitchen of Menzies' home, where Menzies kept a bowie knife used for cutting ox livers. It was then that Thomas made his innocuous remarks. Menzies said that Akasha, who was there in the kitchen, turned her back to indicate her displeasure, so Menzies had stabbed Thomas three or four times in the neck. Then he continued to stab him in the face, shoulders and neck, using both the Bowie knife and a kitchen knife. Despite his injuries, Thomas fled desperately from the scene, running from his life, and he went up the steps to Menzies' bedroom. Time must have stood still for him, as Menzies grabbed a hammer and chased him, hitting him on the head as hard as he could, until Thomas collapsed. Akasha, said Menzies, 
was by his side through the whole attack, fully approving of and encouraging what he was doing. Remember that Queen of the Damned is a vampire film. And next, Menzies turned Thomas's dead body onto its side to drain some blood out, and he drank two cupfuls of it. He also ate part of the skull which had been broken from the blows. When he had done this, he looked into the mirror to ensure that his teeth were covered with the blood of his friend. Akasha told him that she was pleased with his work and that she wanted him to do it again. The only way to please her, Menzies explained, was to kill. He then needed to dispose of the body before his dad returned home, and to do this he took it in a wheeled cart into the woods where he buried Thomas. He then watched a video, fed the family's ferrets, watched TV and listened to music. When asked if he'd any regret or remorse for killing his best friend, he said no. Akasha seemed angry after Thomas insulted her. She didn't say anything, he said. It was a look on her face. She wasn't pleased. Then she turned her back to me. Asked why Akasha turned away from him, Menzies said. Because Thomas had just insulted her and I'd let him get away with it. Menzies said how he felt a growing rage when Akasha turned her back. But he added, at the end of the day, I knew I'd have to murder somebody anyway. If you don't murder somebody, then you can't become a vampire. And drinking the blood was absolutely key in pleasing Akasha. Menzies was asked how he felt now that Thomas was dead. He replied, I'm sorry for his mum and his sister. Asked what else he felt, Menzies replied, Nothing really. He said he did not wish he could turn back the clock. And he said of Akasha, People try and tell me that she wasn't real and I couldn't hear her. But that's bullshit. He claimed that six weeks after Thomas's death, Akasha told him to find another victim. He said he considered obeying her, but he'd managed to stop himself. He told two police officers who were driving him to his first court appearance that he would get 20 to 25 years. One of them told the court that he said, How do you think things will go today? I'm going to get 20 to 25 years for this, I know that, for doing him the hammer and my bowie knife. But I've got his soul. Such a shocking act led many to claim that Mendes must have been suffering from a severe mental illness to commit such a crime. Dr. Derek Chiswick, one of the three psychiatrists for the Crown who diagnosed Menzies as a psychopath, said he was emotionally disturbed, but he wasn't mentally ill, and that he was probably faking how extreme his obsession was in order to get a lighter sentence. I suspect his enjoyment of violence, he added, is the principal factor in the prolonged and excessively violent nature of this crime. It was revealed that from prison, Menzies had been sending letters to himself at his dad's house, written by fantasy characters. One, from Vamp, signed in blood, was written to Akasha with a vow to kill again. Those letters appeared to be a calculated attempt to make himself look seriously mentally ill. But at the trial, Menzies claimed it was Vamp who had actually murdered Thomas. It was not he who had written in the pages of a novel, I've chosen to become a vampire. The blood is the life. I've drunk the blood and it shall be mine, for I've seen the horror. 
He said that was his alter ego, which he'd acquired in the act of killing. Defence psychiatrist Alexander Cooper supported that with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. The delusions had the quality of hallucinations, he said. And in his summing up, the judge took the time to explain to the jury that they needed to be clear in their minds whether Menzies was lying or authentically hallucinating at the time that he murdered Thomas McKendrick. The jury gave their verdict after only 90 minutes of deliberation. Guilty. They did not accept Menzies' excuse of diminished responsibility, but it returned a unanimous verdict that Alan Menzies was guilty of murder. Menzies didn't react, as on the 8th of October 2003, the judge sentenced him to a minimum sentence of 18 years, declaring him an outright psychopath. Evil, merciless and dangerous. Alan Menzies was 21 years of age at the time of his conviction. Speaking after the verdict, Thomas McKendrick's mum, Sandra, said, We are pleased with this verdict. And her daughter, Sandra Mary, said, He has got what he deserved. I believed he was not mentally ill. It was just an act. After his client was jailed for life, his solicitor said the case highlighted the social stigma surrounding mental health, the continued taboo and the lack of understanding or support of schizophrenia and mental health in our community can only mean that tragedies like this case are more likely to happen and not less. I must apologise because I hate to concentrate more on Menzies than Thomas McKendrick, but I was interested to look back at Menzies' early life for any potential clues of just what horror he could be capable of doing. His mum Linda, a lollipop lady, described her son as quiet, very withdrawn, who very rarely went out and didn't have many friends. He didn't drink or take drugs, and he was a hard boy to understand, and she always felt there was something not quite right with him. He spent long periods in his bedroom, sometimes not coming out all day with his curtains closed, sometimes rocking back and forth making noises. Her son struggled with change and panic would set in, but he could be a loving boy who was meticulous in cleaning, hoovering and dusting his bedroom every day. He had a history of self-harm from an early age, having overdosed on paracetamol on around four or five occasions, sometimes resulting in hospitalisation. On two or three other occasions he had threatened to overdose, but didn't go through with the act. He had a history of snapping and violence. When he was just 14, Alan Menzies had stabbed another boy in his class and had been sentenced to detention for three years. In his defence, he said he'd been bullied and had defended himself. But others said he was a sadist, with a reputation for obsession with violence, and had described to psychiatrists a fantasy life involving Nazis and serial killers. Whilst in detention, he attempted to hang himself, using his pyjamas as a ligature. His mum felt his behaviour had improved following his release, but she told of another recent incident when he was about 20 when they were both in the kitchen and her son had taken a knife and made a large cut on his arm. And there seemed to be no explanation for this. Since the age of 18, according to some who knew him, he'd been obsessed with vampires. And in 2001, he'd showed enthusiasm about a crime committed in Wales in which a young man had killed an older woman 
to drink her blood to become a vampire. When Alan Menzies was 19 years of age, his parents separated, and he chose to live with his dad, Thomas. Thomas initially described his son as just being like any other boy. He had good days and bad days, with his major interests being computers and ferrets. But he too noticed a change, and Alan became very quiet and introverted, and never opened the blinds in his room. He also felt he was a very hard boy to understand as he kept himself to himself, a difficult person to read. Menzies struggled in prison and on Tuesday the 9th of November 2004 he was transferred to the segregation unit. The following Monday morning every cell in the unit was opened as usual by the three officers on duty to ensure that all was in order. The three officers came to cell 5 at approximately 8.05am and there they found Alan Menzies hanging by the neck. There was a ligature around his neck, part of his bed clothing, which had been attached to the top of a metal frame that was situated on the outside of his cell window. There were fresh cuts to his upper left arm, and there was blood smeared on his arms and upper body. On a wall outside the window, the word justice was written in his blood. The officers checked for a pulse, but there was none and the body was cold and rigid, and at 8.55am, Alan Menzies was pronounced dead. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Of course our thoughts are with the family and friends of poor Thomas McKendrick, who suffered a terrible, violent death for no valid reason. Can you imagine just how frightening it must have been for him? Once again, I struggle to understand how those close to him can live with the knowledge of what happened to him in the last moments of his life. We can only hope that despite this awful crime, they can manage to live some sort of fulfilled life themselves. I think we've said quite enough about Alan Menzies, but I would like to finish on the impact that one film made on his life. Of course, it isn't the first time we've heard of films influencing real life. At the moment, the Slender Man character appears prominent in many crimes. And do you recall The Loved Ones, a 2009 horror film, the story of a teenager so upset by her love interest's refusal to go to the prom with her that she kidnaps and tortures him with help from her equally deranged dad? Do you remember the story? This movie was a favourite of Gary George, who murdered his friend Andrew Now in Andrew's own flat in 2016. During the attack, George carved into his friend's stomach and threw salt onto the open wound, mimicking a scene from the film. He also poured cleaning fluid into Andrew's eyes while he was still alive. Gary George was sentenced to serve a minimum of 30 years in prison. And a number of crimes have been linked to the 1998 film Scream, which featured the mask-wearing maniac Ghostface. In 1999, 14-year-old Daniel Gill and 15-year-old Robert Fuller, both of Harrogate, Yorkshire, were found guilty of the attempted murder of Ashley Murray, a 13-year-old, after watching that film. And in 2001, 24-year-old Belgian truck driver Thierry Jaradin stabbed his 15-year-old neighbour, Alison Cambier, to death while dressed as Ghostface after she rebuffed his sexual advances. And then, of course, the 1994 movie Natural Born Killers has been named as an inspiration for a number of murders. The two students responsible for the 1999 Columbine High School massacre were fans, 
and used the film's acronym, NBK, as a code in their home videos and journals. They murdered 12 students and one teacher, injuring 24 others before taking their own lives. One had referred to the day of the killing as the holy April morning of NBK. So many examples, and yet people are still going to watch all sorts of films and other media. And sadly, this isn't the last time that we're going to hear of those characters acting as inspiration for a terrible act in real life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the UK True Crime Facebook group where you'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash a UK true crime, where you can listen to 27 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. And please don't forget to head to uktruecrime.com to read the pieces from the True Crime Enthusiast and Steve from the Evil Minds podcast. Finally, you will also find on the website a link to buy tickets for my serial killer talks in Manchester and London with top author Geoffrey Wonsall. Hurry, as tickets are nearly gone. So it's that time again when I will leave you for another week. Yep, yep, I know. Please, no tears. So until we speak again next week, remember, everything is everything, except for some things that aren't everything. And those things are what I call nothing. So on that bombshell, I'll speak to you next week. Cheerio, and of course, stay classy.